to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. There, the Lord showed him the whole land, from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zor. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, but to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Word of the Lord. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly outside. Last Sunday, I had us consider sort of ending the book of Deuteronomy together, and this Sunday, sort of ending our time with Moses together. Um, if you, if you take the sort of classical argument of, of who wrote the first five books of the Bible, uh, most Christians would say they were written by Moses. Um, now, obviously, there are parts of it that say they're written by Moses. Who wrote the end of Deuteronomy? You, you see how this gets hard. Uh, and then I died, and nobody knows where my grave is. Um, uh, so obviously, he didn't write all of it, even within its own text. There are parts that don't seem to include him. Um, but in some sense, you know, five summers ago, um, if you remember back then, and I think only a quarter of you were here then anyways, we started with the book of Genesis and this movement through Genesis. And then the next summer we went to the book of Exodus. And then the next summer we did the book of Leviticus, which everybody loved. And then the summer after that, we did the book of Numbers, which was perhaps the most deeply meaningful to me. And then, uh, this summer we finished with Deuteronomy. And there's this way in which this sort of end of this story sort of stands at, at the, the edge of a new beginning, too, is that Moses dies here at the edge of the land, and yet we're awaiting that movement into the land. And I think we talked about last week about how Torah sort of critically ends that way. That, like, we sit at this edge, and what God is going to do and restore in this place is something that is still yet to come. 
And so we wait there with Moses at this moment and at this time. One of the things that I, I was thinking about this week, and I didn't know how it would connect to the Sermon on the Mount, but I did know how it would connect to the Torah, was there's this thing, um, and this is off subject, so uh, give me a minute, um, is that there's this, in, in the Arthur, one of the Arthurian legends, there's this notion in which they have to go and seek the Holy Grail. And, and think of that as like trying to seek the holy life, trying to seek to belong to God as the Israelites are called to be. And one of the things is they don't know where it is, and they get to the edge of this forest, and each one decides to enter the forest where it is darkest to him. And so there's this way in which if you're going to go after that thing, and in this case in the Torah, it's, it's becoming the chosen people of God, this holy people of God, is that you're going to have to enter in that in the place that is darkest for you. If we want healing from our sin and brokenness and unholiness, we need to enter into the darkness that is for us. And it's the same way in which we enter in that darkness as a people. Um, is one of the arguments I've been trying to make, at least since the book of Exodus, is Israel, uh, we read as an individual, and we read Israel as a collective. So when we talk about the journey into holiness, uh, the modern Christian world maybe has has reduced it to an individual quest, but it's also a collective quest as well. And so there's this way in which we have to enter. And so it works, if you think about it this way, with, with what has happened in this story, is Abraham has to leave his father's house without any children. He has to leave the security of that place to move into this holiness. One of the weirder ones, which I didn't think I would say, but here we are, is, is Noah, is that Noah is upright in this violent generation, and he has to build a ship so that um, death can come upon the rest of the world. He has to enter into what perhaps might be darkest for him. Moses um, uh, flees Egypt, and part of what he has to do on this way of coming into this people of God is return back to that place. For some of us, and for some of us in the church, as a church, it's not just a leaving, but it's also returning that is that darkest spot for us. He has to return to Egypt and enter into Pharaoh's household. For Israel, they have to be willing to leave Egypt. Now that may seem obvious, like you leave Egypt and go off into the wilderness, seems like, but if you think about it in chronologically in the book of the books of Genesis and Exodus, they don't know a whole lot about this God yet. And they're being asked to leave the, at least the security of the minor life that they have in Egypt to go off to someplace else that they don't know where yet. They have to trust at that moment and get moving to be the people of God. It's no... Um, shouldn't be lost on us that as they move through that motion, they long to go back. And it's almost like they're, they're being called into the relationship with this God who is a king and who is a pharaoh is a regal sort of figure for them. And you could imagine having been a people who are slaves to a regal figure to trust again. This is for some of us. It's to trust again that to trust again that you could join up with a good king. A good God, 
who intends to care and comfort for you and not bring you into domination, systems of domination and abuse. They have to be willing to enter into that space, to be able to trust again, and to see a new future. In Numbers, we see them face many of the challenges that would, that would, and comforts that they would have liked to have remained in Egypt. One of the things we talked about when we went through Numbers is it's 40 years, uh, about six rebellions, if I remember correctly. Um, I can whine to God six times in a week, in a day sometimes. So we have to cut these people some slack. They, they went six years throughout the wilderness, surrounded by death after the spies episode. And they only have three major complaints, or six major complaints preserved for us. Quite, quite the feat, in my opinion. Um, but they have to face, you know, their challenges of comfort around food, around um, what we had in Egypt, of trusting this God, of, of new power arrangements. One of the bigger rebellions is when they go and they challenge Moses. They can't accept that Moses might have something that they don't. And so that's the world in which they sort of have to move through to get to this place. And then the book of Deuteronomy are the words in which Moses expounds to them how they will live in hope on this new land and how they will be in this new place to come back, to live again, and to enter into new blessings. And many of these are a challenge, too, is that if you come from a place of, of not having land, of not having food, of not having this, and be instructed to share, or as we read in the, the Sabbath economics passage, to live open-handedly, um, to not build walls around just your stuff and expect it to be that way, um, that there's a challenge within that book. And there's a way in which um, the names, the Hebrew names, also sort of lay out for us a way of understanding Jesus. And that's part of what I want to do today is as we say goodbye, we're back on track now, I think. Um, as we say goodbye to Moses is to, is to consider how he is for us a one who witnesses to who Jesus is in his own way. And in that way, we learn more about Jesus is that he is one who is much like Jesus for us. And we can see these outlines. Now, Brian, who read the shortest secondary reading during the uh, worship set, that, that Jesus goes up on, Desai, on the mountain, he sits down and calls his disciples to himself. That was it. Um, Matthew's gospel in particular wants to point, paint Jesus as this new Moses. And so what Moses does is he expounds the law to the people. So Jesus expounds sort of a new covenant, a new law to the people, and he calls the people near to him. The Gospel of Matthew has five major teaching sections, which people consider to be the author's way of putting his teachings together to evidence five books of the Torah as well, that he is sort of this new Moses who leads people into freedom in a different way. But when we look at, uh, and these are the Hebrew names in the beginning, um, is the first one. They all come from the first sort of sentence. Is in the beginning, we find in Genesis, we found in Genesis the story of God creating the universe out of chaos and bringing it into order. And to understand Jesus through Torah, it's, this one's pretty easy because the Gospel of John begins the same way. That in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. And that in the beginning when we read it in Genesis, for Christians is shaded by also this way in which Jesus is in the beginning. But the book of Genesis moves in its second half to this calling of this particular people, this Abrahamic people, as this sort of way of God repairing the world. 
that they will be blessed so that they will be a blessing to the nations and they are called into having land too. And what we find in that opening to John's gospel too is that we're, people are called out as the children of the light in a world of darkness. This is a way of understanding that first ha- second half in relationship to Jesus is that Jesus, while he is in the beginning, the second movement of that is to call out of people who are distinct in their own way. One of the things we talked about with the Moses story is there's this way in which God tries a grand solution to the problem of human sinfulness, and we get off the boat, and what do we do? We sin again. There is no grand solution, and so God calls out a particular person and a particular people to embody that witness of solution, to not just do it in a grand way. And this is, I think, part of our frustration in politics in the modern world is we want grand solutions to fix everyone whereas God's solution is to call out a small people powerless in the world to begin to witness to the life that he created for to be a blessing to the nations I'd rather just vote for somebody and have it all be done with and yet that's not what God has for us it's the process of living and learning in this way So if we want to stand the book of Exodus Christologically, there's two halves to that book too, but the first half is is in in Hebrew, it's these are the names, the names of the generations that are in Egypt. Is is at the end of Genesis, Abraham has um, received one, he's promised land and lots of kids and to be a blessing to the world. And so far, not much of a blessing, although they did rescue Egypt from famine. um, And he's got just his grave and his wife's grave and the generations are starting to grow. They go into Egypt, and they grow to be numerous. These are the names of the people who went in, and they grow to be numerous, but they end up in slavery. So now we're not doing great on the three things that God sort of called them out to be. And what this is, this movement towards freedom from slavery into new life. Christ, for us, is the one through baptism, the waters of baptism, calls us into new creation, calls us into exodus from sin and slavery and death, and sets us on a path to not a new promised land, or a new promised land of sorts, if you want to say it that way, to the kingdom of God. In the second half of the book, they find out what it is to be and to worship with this God this one who's generous in ways they can't imagine as they go into deep sin. Exodus uh, 33, 34, uh, about this God who is gracious and compassionate, who cares for his people. And there's this this part about visiting inequity that I never really figured out until this year, or began to figure out, is that it says um, goodness will be on thousands of generations, but inequity will last a generation. There's still this holiness to this God, but this holiness in the negative sense is actually limited, but in the positive sense, the grace sense, is infinite. Uh, It's much greater than that. Um, And we can't leave behind that either. Um, And so Jesus is one who embodies and witnesses to that. Leviticus, if there are people who like to um, set up the Bible on sort of ring structures— this is, I don't know how we got, uh, circles. And so the ends and the beginnings mirror each other, and then the middle is the point. So if you were to take what's the middle of the Torah, it's um, Leviticus, and in particularly it's the middle of Leviticus where there's this sort of um, day of atonement, um, uh, the sacrificial sort of thing in which, in which the people are released from their sins. 
Jesus becomes the one who embodies this whole system himself, not just that sacrifice, but all the sacrifices, in a way to set people free from sins. He's one who will wash the world of their sins. Numbers is this wilderness passage, and this is this going back to thinking about the darkest spot where we need to go is that we inevitably will fail, and this is the point of the book of Numbers, is that as you go out into the wilderness, you too will inevitably fail to some degree. And yet what we have in Jesus is a one who goes faithfully before us. So we commonly say that Jesus was sinless, which is true, but what does it mean that he's sinless in 40 days in the wilderness as a mirror image of what it is for 40 years in the wilderness in the book of Numbers? That Jesus embodies, takes on the story of Israel himself, and yet not living it in sin, he lives it in fullness. It's not a fractured story in him, but one in which it was meant to be. It's why Jesus can reconstitute Israel with his 12 disciples, is that he has lived that story of sinfulness and fracturedness that God has been gracious in as God faithfully. He restores that. And that brings us to the book of Deuteronomy and brings us to where we begin next Sunday, the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus is one who goes up on the mountain and expounds a new law for us and gives us a new law. But no Moses, going back to Moses today, is unable to enter the promised land. He dies on the edge of it. He spent his whole life sort of going towards that place, and he is unable to go across. But to think of the way that Moses mirrors for us what we're waiting for in Jesus, is I think we've got three or four images that work for us. The first, which we've hinted at, is that Moses is a teacher. Moses as a teacher is how Jesus comes to us as a teacher as well. So from the beginning of, of the book of Deuteronomy is that Jesus or Moses is one who expounds the law for people. It's kind of this weird tension because um, Protestant Christians, Catholic Christians, probably all Christians to some degree, the Bible is all the holy word of God and this is important. And that's true. Don't... <laughs> I'm going to say stuff like that. Don't think I'm denying that. But what is interesting about the book of Deuteronomy is it's almost as if Moses has the holy word of God that he is then teaching the people so that it is accessible to them. And so the teaching in the book of Deuteronomy for us, because it's canonical, is the holy word of God. But if you think about it contextually, it's Moses expressing the truth of what that means. He has received the word of God. The Israelites have received the God, word of God. But what does that mean? Moses goes up on the mountain at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy to expound that to them. And it's said several times in there because Moses began to expound the law, saying that Moses in this book is continually trying to put people in the context of this is how this will go out. And so the major portion of the second law, which is Deuteronomy, comes from second law, uh, Deuter, I don't, ask Hampton later, he knows. It means second law, but anyways, which is about 15 till about 30. Um, I, I mentioned that it can mirror with the Ten Commandments. It's almost like living the Ten Commandments in public is these laws. 
So you have the 10 words that, that sort of is this and how does that work out? Well, here's how it works out with debts. Here's how it works out with kings. Here's how it works out with um, cities of refuge. Here's how it works out in these ways is that, is that these things are expounded to them so that they can be God's body in the world. And so it is for Jesus with the church is that he goes up on a mountain and gives this new law in the Sermon on the Mount and in other portions of the of of the New Testament. Luke has a Sermon on the Plain, um, which is different than the Sermon on the Mount, um, in which he expounds how we too will live out this law. Because we, we talked about before, and this is in the Sermon on the Mount, that he says he didn't come to eradicate any of it, but to fill it to, to the jot and tittle, to the smallest letters. And so when we think about what Jesus is doing in expounding this new law to us, he doesn't want to think of us as, as, well, Moses had his law, but I have one. He wants to say that he's expounding what it means faithfully in this new way. For us to be the new Israel constituted in the world is sort of where he's going with that. Moses as a prophet... This is where Kim read for us this morning is that there hasn't been a prophet like him. And it said that the Lord your God will raise up a prophet for you like me among you from your fellow Israelites is what he says earlier in this book. And what that's happening is that there, um, Moses is this prophet and prophet works in two ways for Moses. One is to be a prophet in the truest sense is to speak somebody else's words. So he speaks the words of God for these people, which is the same thing that happens with the later prophets. And of course, particularly happens with Jesus, is that he becomes the spokesperson of God by being God in the flesh. And what I want to point about both of these, all these things we're going to talk about with Moses, that he is for us, that Jesus is, is that God has used human people before he takes on flesh to illuminate God's word for us. That God has not despised matter in teaching us. He does not um, uh, send golden words from on high that don't come through people. That God uses people to teach these things. Not all people, that's for sure. But, but particular ones like Moses are called into this place. Um, that they witness to this. And so he is one who is a prophet for them. The other thing it said in, in the portion that Kim read for us is that he does signs and wonders, which is another aspect of being a prophet in this world. And that one doesn't take a lot to say that Jesus too does signs and wonders as a prophet in the world. This is from the book of Acts. Uh, Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me and among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Is that in the book of Acts, one of the things that the, uh, this is from Acts 3, so Peter's sermon, I think, um, uh, Stephen's sermon in uh, Acts 7, same phraseology, is that one of the things that they use in the book of Acts is to say to their fellow Jews that Jesus is the prophet that Moses spoke of. And they say, well, Jeremiah was, and this person was, and this one is, but, but they're particular saying, nope, the one that is that prophet now is this one we call Jesus. And when you wonder why some of these guys are killed, I think Stephen ends his, his portion of this, and you killed him. It's like, it's a, uh, 
okay, well, let's stone that guy. Um, <laughs> the one who is the new prophet was the one that you killed. Um, doesn't go over well. Um, Moses as intercessor. This is the one um, that I think brings us closer to Jesus. The last one brings us even uh, closer is that Moses intercedes for his people. This is from the book of Deuteronomy. Now I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights as I did the first time, and the Lord listened to me at this time. It was not his will to destroy you. Go, the Lord said, and lead the people on their way so that they may enter and possess the land, which I swore to give their ancestors to give them. Is that Moses intercedes for his people. And this is one of those things is Abraham is one like this, um, particularly around Sodom and Gomorrah. Moses is like this. Um, Jonah is, is an opposite of this in some ways. He, he, when God is generous and compassionate, he says, I knew you'd do that, and that's why I didn't want to go and tell them, because I wanted you to kill them all. Uh, we'll talk about Jonah someday. So um, there's a, a <laughs> that's just a comma. It's, Jonah is funny like that. It's, a, it's like, I knew you'd be kind to them, and I didn't want to go tell them that. Um, but we have... This way in which there are characters within the Old Testament that intercede for God. And, and it's hard for us because it seems like God changes his mind or God changes God's mind at these passages. Um, I think that's perhaps a bad way of understanding this because it, it seems to be an appeal to God's character. They don't appeal to like God think differently, but they actually appeal to who God is as they know him. And that's what causes God to be more of God for them. Um, and they have this belief that God's mercy is more intense than his judgment. In their intercessions, they believe that God's is more merciful than his judgment would be upon people. And this is Moses, this is Abraham, um, this is Jonah, and the opposite is that, that God's mercy is in somehow more infinite for us. There's a big challenge here in this one, that, that Moses is one who intercedes and consents with God, but he doesn't wipe out the others. Is, and, and we talked about this, is, is God's yes and God's no, is that you can't have the yes without the no, and you can't have the no without the yes, but the yes is deeper than the no. God's yes to humanity in Jesus Christ, or is in the ways that Moses and uh, Abraham knew it, is stronger than God's no to human sinfulness. Because if they were um, completely in tension, we'd be hosed. No, no hope. There needs to be a word of grace in life that's stronger than the no. And that's, as Moses intercedes, he finds that. Now, one of the ways in which Jesus does this, which is many, of course, is that in, in John 17, Christ prays for his church in the world. He even in this particular, he says, I'm not praying for the world, I'm praying for the church now that you've given me to God, that Christ prays for us. And it's one of those things when we started the confession that we use here at church, which I always think about amending or changing, but the words of absolution that says Christ prays for us always strikes me as something I forget, is that Christ is one who prays for us, his church and his body within the world. And one of the ways in which Christ might be Another evidence of Moses in this way is when he's surrounded and being crucified, he says to them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. He is this one who calls out God's compassion even at the moment of his death. 
Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. One of the things I tried to, to think about this, this week is, and I have no answer for this, is, is that a prayer God answers for Jesus? Are the people who crucify Jesus because Christ prays for them, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing? How is that answered, and how is that not answered? Think about that all week and tell me what you figure out, because it did not work for me. Um, but that Christ prays for us. Christ is an intercessor for his church as well. And the last one, which I think is the biggest stretch for us, but I think it's wise, is that Moses is this suffering servant. He's this one who dies outside the land. From the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, but the Lord was angry at me because of you and would not listen to me when Moses is asking going into the land. Now, many of us are, um, why isn't Moses allowed into the land? Because of a sin he committed back in the wilderness. For some reason, and I don't know why, the book of Deuteronomy drops that as a reason for why Moses isn't allowed into the land. But he's not allowed into the land because of what the way that the people have sinned. He's not allowed in because of what other people have done. And so he has to bear upon himself being left outside the land as they go into the land. Jesus, as the suffering servant, is one who goes into the darkest of death himself so that we can go into God's presence as forgiven ones. That Moses here is an archetype of what Jesus does on the cross too in dying in this unfulfilled place. Is that because God was angry with what they had done, he has to stay out of the land. And because God is angry at what humanity has done, so Christ goes to the cross and suffers as an innocent one. In the book of Deuteronomy, not to deny what happened in the book of Numbers, it wants to portray Moses as one who suffers innocently so that other people may live. There's this phrase they use of Jesus in the New Testament is that he saved others, let him save himself. And so Jesus is this one who writes it out in this way. So to, uh, Elizabeth Atchmer, one of the commentaries are using, summarizes Moses' journey in, as a foreshadowing of Christ in this way. Moses in Deuteronomy serves as a foreshadowing of the figure of Jesus. It is a significant analogy for our Lord comes to us proclaiming the Torah of the New Covenant, on the mount of the new revelation, on the new mount of revelation, like Moses, he calls for the total commitment of our heart and soul and mind and strength and love to God and neighbor in order that we may enter into the final inheritance of abundant life. But that is not a legalistic call any more than Moses was. It is a call which assures us that already this day we are the people of God redeemed out of slavery and given the possibility of new life. It is a call which assures us, as Moses did Israel, that God is with us and that we, therefore, need never fear any threat or enemy. It is a call which carries with it God's heartfelt yearning for our good always and the power to answer in obedience. It is a call which sets us before the decision of whether we shall have life or death. This is where we were last week. Like Moses, our covenant meteor also intercedes for us before the Father and lays down his own life for our sin. But unlike Moses who dies and whose grave remains unknown in order to prevent any worship of him, 
Our covenant mediator is raised and exalted to the right hand of the Father as the Lord, whom we worship and adore. Jesus Christ has won the victory which Moses could only dimly foresee. In him, the journey of Israel finds its goal and fulfillment. That Moses is this one who is an outlined figure of the one that comes to us in fullness in Jesus Christ and reveals to us um, the deeper meaning so that the truths of what were proclaimed to Abraham back at the beginning of Torah, that you will be numerous, which we're giving through Jesus Christ, that we would be a blessing to the nations. And this is the seed of Israel that is now all people are brought into through Jesus, and that we would be uh, have our own land, which is now turned into this eternal kind of life or um, new creation in which we are called and set forth to go to. And so Moses dies at the edge of the wilderness. This is on the back of your bulletin, and will be our last thing for today, is Moses on the, is on the track of Canaan all his life. It is incredible that he should see the land only on the verge of death. This dying vision of it can only be intended to illustrate how incomplete a moment in it is how incomplete a moment is human life. Moses failed to enter Canaan not because his life was too short, but because it was a human life. This is from uh, Franz Kafka, French existentialist who was Jewish, in, um, at least in uh, ethnically, if, if you want to say it that way. But what he is pointing out is that Moses' journey is the journey that all of us will have minus Christ's return. We all die at the edge of the promise, awaiting for that fulfillment, not because our lives are too short, but because that is the nature of human life, that sin has touched us all. And one of the things that I think the book of Deuteronomy is doing well for us is not offering an explanation of this per se. There is no grand theory of why this is what God allows for Moses to happen. And so too it should be for us. We rush too fast to explain death. It's here I think Deuteronomy takes the side of Job, uh, the book of Job, God's side in the book of Job, which is to say that we try to explain all these things. Why would the good person suffer? Why would Moses be denied in this way? And the fact is the book of Job, and I think the book of Deuteronomy hold out for us, is that that is too rich for us to know. Job says that he, after he hears from God just a list of, uh, of questions, that he has spoken foolishly, he realized that he will speak no more because it is all too wonderful for him. To be a people who walk with God, who make it to the edge of the land, is to see that this is wonderful for us, and to speak no more and wait for the kingdom to come. Let us pray. God, we too in our lives stand at the edge of your promise. We pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And yet we know we also pray, come, Lord Jesus. We await the promise of your new creation, no longer frustrated by sin and death and destruction, no longer groaning in anguish, in wordless sighs, where your spirit intercedes for us. 
but one in which we will live on your land and trust in your peace and know your goodness. Allow us to see in Moses an outline of your son who comes to us as prophet, as teacher, as intercessor, and as one who suffers innocently for us so that we may be brought into your new life and be received into the kingdom of heaven. We ask all this in your holy name. Amen.